Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whenever you happen to be joining us. Thank you for tuning in to our Sunday worship service. Of course, we're back to where we were in March. I'm here preaching to empty pews, and uh, you're at home. But we're so thankful that this time, uh, unlike last time, we're much more prepared. We have the technology in place to seamlessly move to this once more, and uh, we're thankful for that. Of course, none of us wanted to be back here. We, we had hoped that we had dealt with the, the virus and the pandemic back in, in early summer, and yet here we are again still dealing with it. And uh, so, of course, uh, we still have uh, a ways to go, but we're, we're confident that with the Lord's help, we will get there. And so as we're, as we're going through this, we're thankful we can still worship together as a church family. And so I hope that wherever you are, you're taking a time right now to be together with your loved ones in your home, with your, with your family, uh, and uh, worshiping God together. I was thinking all the way back to March when this first rocked our world. And uh, uh, that very first Sunday, I preached a sermon with the opening line from A.W. Tozer, who had once said, A scared world needs a fearless church. And I think that's more true than ever. A scared world needs a fearless church. I was talking with uh, the Honorable Ron Schuler, Minister of Infrastructure and Emergency Services this past week, and one of the things he mentioned to me was that uh, in Winnipeg, he just said, you go out in the street, and he's like, fear is in the air. You can almost taste it. You can almost smell it. And he just said, it's, it's not good. And especially as a believer himself, he said, we, we don't need to be afraid. We need to deal with the problem, yes, but we don't need to live in fear. And I think that's something where as believers, we really need to uh, live that out, exemplify that, that though we have, we have a, a real problem, a real trial that we're going through, we don't need to face it with fear, but with confidence and hope in the Lord. Second Timothy chapter 1 verse 7 tells us, for God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-discipline. And so even as we see this spirit of fear all around us and it's in the air, let's remember God did not give us that spirit of fear, but he gave us one of power, love, and self-discipline. And so we can call on him and throw our fears on him and know that this is what he will will give us in return. And so let's let's remind ourselves of that even as we're going through a a very challenging time in in our lives and in the life of our nation. One of the things that we'll have to uh, remember now moving forward uh, through the coming weeks is in regards to our offering, that we will not be able to uh, receive that in the normal way. However, if you would like to still give your regular tithe or offering, the church will still be open uh, during my regular office hours to give a donation in person. The donation box is located in the church foyer, and you can leave it there. Uh, And also, you can... Mail it to the church at P.O. Box 969, Clarney, Manitoba, R0K1G0, and make the check payable to Clarney Mennonite Church. And so you can still give in that manner, and uh, uh, we can still proceed uh, accordingly. I would now invite you to bow with me, and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in all seasons you are faithful. And Lord, we're in a season of life where once again we are facing trial and adversity, where the, the headlines uh, every single day are, are filled with, with foreboding, with fear, with bad news. And we seem pressed by it on all sides. 
And yet your word tells us that though we are pressed, we are not destroyed. Because you, the Lord God, through faith in your Son, you indwell our hearts through faith. And that by your Holy Spirit, we are not given a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that this power, this love and self-control would, would fill our hearts even stronger in these days. That this scared world around us needs to see a fearless church. And that, that means each one of us individually expressing our hope and our confidence in you. And yes, we still need to deal with, with our trials and, and the situation head on. We don't do so in a spirit of fear. But we do it knowing that you're with us and we walk with confidence accordingly. And so I pray that you would just bless our hearts, still our hearts, Lord, wherever there is fear. Help us to cast it upon you because you are so ready to take it from us and to, and to bless us with your presence. And so, Father, we, we do this this morning. We intercede, Lord, for our government officials in this very challenging time. We pray for the Honorable Ron Schuler. We pray for our Premier Pallister. We pray for our health officials and especially Dr. Brent Rusin and many others who are also involved, Lord, in making critical decisions that affect us all. We pray, Lord, that you would just grant them wisdom and discernment and, and courage and strength during these times as they also feel the pressure and, and all of the things that we are feeling and yet compounded by being the people having to make the decisions. And so we pray that you would guide them to make wise decisions, Lord. And we pray ultimately that you would lead our province uh, through and out of this, this current virus situation and that, Lord, we would be able to see brighter days in, in, in the future to come. We pray, Lord, for especially those who are feeling the financial pinch of this time. We think of small business owners, especially in the Christmas season, and we pray, Lord, please provide for them and help them to turn to you in hope. Help us to be mindful of them as well and seek to support them as we are able. And so, Father, thank you that we can lean on, on one another during these times and help bear one another's burdens as we go through this together. And so, Father, thank you for this church family. I pray a blessing on each home as they gather, that your, your Holy Spirit's presence would be felt as they worship you, and that, Lord, through this time, we would, we would be drawn together uh, in the unity of the Spirit. Even though we are separate in person, we are together because of you. And so we thank you for this. So bless this time, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you have your Bibles, please uh, take them. And uh, if you don't have your Bibles, feel free to run and grab them. And uh, we're going to be continuing in our sermon series in the book of Romans into part 8, which I've entitled, Rejoice in Suffering. Wait, what? So this is where we're going today in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Therefore... Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope, and hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So far the reading of God's word. Would you bow with me once more? Father, we thank you for your word, that it is living and active, and that this word is once again so timely for the season in which we find ourselves. I pray, Father, that you would open this word to our minds and hearts, that you would speak your words specifically to our situations wherever we find ourselves. I pray that you would do this through me, your servant. Speak through me. May the words be yours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll begin today with a fictional story told of a little boy who went to a grocery store and asked the clerk for a box of laundry detergent. As the clerk handed the box to the boy, he asked him why he needed it. I want to wash my dog, the boy replied. Well, son, this detergent is pretty strong. It might be too much for a little dog. The little boy replied, oh, the stronger the better, because he's mighty dirty. So the boy purchased the box of detergent. He then went home, and about a week later, he returned to the grocery store, where the clerk, recognizing him, asked, So, did you manage to get your dog clean? Oh, I got him nice and clean, all right, the little boy replied, somewhat sad. But he didn't make it. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that, replied the clerk. Was the detergent too strong? To which the boy replied, No, the detergent wasn't the problem. I think it was the rinse cycle that got him. Now, for all you dog lovers out there, I'll emphasize that that was a fictional story. However, I think we can identify with that little dog, feeling like we've been put through the ringer or the rinse cycle. This year of 2020 has definitely made us all feel a little bit like that. It just keeps coming at us. Last week I had said that this year is like looking for light at the end of the tunnel and just when you see the light, it's a freight train bearing down on you. And that's just how it's continuing to be. However, in all of this, even as we, as we acknowledge what's happening and, and on top of our individual circumstances, I'll admit that it can be very easy to just complain about what we're going through, complain about our trials. And if you don't believe that I would ever do that. I'm the pastor. The pastor never complains. Well, just ask Leanne. She'll, she'll tell you the truth. And so this past week, after hearing yet again more bad news, feeling somewhat discouraged about it all, I opened my Bible to Romans chapter 5 to begin preparing for this Sunday's sermon. And these words just seem to jump right off the page at me. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, so far that makes sense, right? We would rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. These are things that we would naturally rejoice about. But then Paul continues, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Wait, what? Rejoice in our sufferings? Now, I can get fully behind rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God and say, Amen. But rejoicing in our sufferings, is Paul off his rocker? 
Why would I ever rejoice in suffering? Why would I ever say amen to that? Well, continuing on, Paul tells us exactly why. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. So the argument that Paul is making here is that because we know that it is through suffering that God produces good things in our lives, things like uh, perseverance, character, and hope, that because God produces these things in our lives, that when sufferings come our way, we should not only accept them begrudgingly, saying, oh yeah, I guess something good came through that. But when they come, we should in fact have such an attitude that we can rejoice in them, anticipating the good that God will produce in our lives through them. Now, even though I can't see you right now, I can still tell that you're feeling just a little bit, just a tiny bit skeptical. Why? Because, well, I am. When I read this verse this week, I thought... Paul, like, this is great, you know, idealistic kind of thinking, but in reality, how am I supposed to do this? How am I supposed to rejoice in suffering? It's entirely counterintuitive. Human nature is to rejoice for good things and lament and cry over bad things. I mean, when, when you go to a hockey game to root on your favorite team, whether it's the Clarny Shamrocks or the Winnipeg Jets or, sadly, the Toronto Maple Leafs, if that's your thing, I feel, you know, that, I'll leave that with you or the Oilers. Uh, I'm, now I know I'm stepping on a lot of toes here. But whatever it is, whichever team you root for, if you've gone to that game and the other team scores against your team, do you jump up and cheer? The other team scores, do you jump up and say, yes, my team will have a great learning experience from being scored upon? No, you go, oh, man. Right? This is, this is our natural human reaction. And yet the Apostle Paul we must remember, the Apostle Paul was no stranger to sufferings. He wasn't some intellectual up in an ivory tower, you know, lecturing us that we should, feel, we should feel rejoicing in our sufferings without having suffered himself. No, he had a PhD in suffering. There's other, there's other books of the Bible where he lists all of the ways that he suffered, and it's extensive, far beyond anything that almost any other man has, has endured over the period of time for which he endured them, years and years worth of suffering. So not only had Paul himself learned why and how to rejoice in his sufferings, he is teaching here that what he learned in this school of suffering is something that each and every one of us as believers in Christ, each and every one of us can also learn why and how to rejoice in our sufferings. So in order to fully understand this teaching, we first must understand the why before we can get into the how. So why can we rejoice in our sufferings? And for this, we have to go back to Romans 5 and verse 1. There, Paul opens this section by saying, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this by itself is an entirely loaded, jam-packed theological statement that lays the entire foundation for this teaching. So we're going to dig a little bit deeper into it. Allow me to ask you, what is the one thing that people are seeking most in life? The one thing. 
The one thing that people everywhere are seeking most in life. Well, I'm certain that there would be a whole wide variety of answers to this question. People would say, you know, happiness, money, fame, you know, all the usual things. But the Bible reveals to us that though most people don't even realize it, the answer to the question is this. What people seek most in this life is peace. They are seeking peace. And peace can only be found through making peace with God. The late H.G. Wells, a prolific author of dozens of best-selling novels, had more success, fame, and fortune than most anyone could dream of. He is hailed as the father of science fiction. He has had many, many of his books since turned into blockbuster movies, and he even had his picture printed on the front cover of Time magazine in celebration of his 60th birthday. And yet, on his birthday some five years later, H.G. Wells is quoted as saying this, Here I am at 65, still seeking for peace. Perhaps the greatest theologian, St. Augustine, expressed it best more than 1,500 years ago when he wrote in his Confessions, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Now, as we have seen in our series through the first four chapters in Romans, Paul has explained how we as condemned and restless sinners, how we are under the wrath of God, and that, and that so long as we are in this position, we will always remain at war with God. We will be restless in our spirits, always always seeking for more and always going deeper and further into sin and depravity, further from the very thing that we seek. And yet he then explains, getting into chapter 3, how we as, as condemned sinners may find pardon and peace with God by being justified through faith. Now, you'll recall from our previous two sermons that we've been emphasizing a lot on this word justified. And justified is a legal term, whereby a judge declares a defendant not guilty. So in this sense, God as our judge has declared us as the defendant, those who are condemned by our sin, not guilty. So now, I am justified fully through Jesus' death on the cross. His forgiveness and cleansing is so complete that being justified, it's just as if I never sinned. I'm now faultless to stand before God's throne, just as if I never sinned. There's an illustration that is sometimes used to help explain this concept to children. And the illustration is of the three crosses that stand on, Hel on Calvary's hill. I think this illustration is helpful for us adults as well, so here it is. Over the first thief's cross on the left is written, In but not on. In but not on. Then over Jesus' cross in the center is written the words, on but not in. On but not in. And over the second thief's cross on the right is written, in and on. So the first is in but not on, on but not in, and then in and on. So what does this mean? Well, those statements are speaking about sin. The penitent thief the one who, after initially reviling Jesus, 
then became repentant and placed his faith in Jesus by declaring, Lord, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And he then received Jesus' pardon and assurance that today you will be with me in paradise. Well, from that point on, that man had sin in him, but not on him. Because you see, his debt of sin was then transferred to Jesus, and so God declared him justified, not guilty. So then, on the middle cross, Jesus had sin on him, but not in him. He was the spotless Lamb of God, completely perfect, without even a speck of sin in him. Therefore, he was worthy to take that penitent thief's sin on himself. And therefore, he is worthy to take me as a penitent sinner and take my sin upon himself. So that sin is on him, but not in him. And then we come to the second thief on the third cross, who did not repent in faith. He did not cast himself on the mercy of Christ for salvation. Thus, he had his sin both in him and on him. So when he died, he received the just penalty for the sin that remained on him. So what about you? Are you like the first thief or the second? Because this is the, p- the position of literally every last person on planet Earth. We've all sinned, and it all comes down to what do we do with the man in the middle cross? Do we throw ourselves upon him in faith, in repentance, in sincerity of heart, and say, Lord, remember me when you enter your kingdom? Or do we, like the second thief, continue to rail against him, rejecting him to the bitter end and dying with our sin both in us and upon us? You see, it is only by doing what that first penitent thief did, by turning to Jesus and declaring, I believe that you are the Son of God. You are the Messiah, the Lord, the Savior of sinners. You're my only hope, and I trust in you alone for my salvation. And he summarized that all in the phrase, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. Jesus is the only one whose righteousness is accepted by the Father. The only one who had no sin in him. And so when we believe that the perfect righteousness of Jesus is thereby credited to us by faith, and that our sin has been paid for in full, then through that faith we are justified, declared righteous. And then and only then can we have the one thing that our hearts desire most, peace, through peace with God. Now, having peace with God also directly implies that at one time we were not at peace with God, and that, in fact, we were once in a state of war with God as his enemies. Paul has already made the case back in Romans chapter 1 and 2 that God's wrath is being revealed against all sin and all sinners. That's everyone, me and you included. Now, if we jump ahead to Romans chapter 5 and verse 10, Paul states it plainly. For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we we be saved through his life? While we were God's enemies. That is our position before faith. It's not neutral. It is hostile. We are enemies of God 
until the moment of faith. Make no mistake about it. If we are not in Christ, we remain enemies of God. We remain under his wrath. And like the second thief on the cross, if we continue to refuse to receive God's merciful gift, we will die with his wrath remaining on us because it's what we justly deserve. The penalty cannot be just wished away. It can't just be, you know, even taken away because of God's love. Justice, as a perfectly just and holy God, must be served and must be filled. And so it is only through the death of Jesus Christ, the man on the middle cross, that justice can be fully served, and that thereby we can be fully justified and declared not guilty, reconciled, and have peace with God. So, like the first thief, have you made peace with God? Or, like the second, are you resisting, refusing his merciful offer, and remaining in a state of war? There's a true story told that one Lieutenant Hiro Unada became the last Japanese soldier to surrender following World War II on March 10th, 1974. Yes, you heard me correctly, 1974, some 29 years after Japan had formally surrendered to the Allies. Apparently, Lieutenant Onada had been left on the Lubang Island in the Philippines on December 25, 1944, and he'd been given the final order from his commanding officer, carry on the mission and never surrender. Four other Japanese soldiers were also left on the island with him. One of them surrendered finally in 1950. Another was killed in a skirmish with local police in 1954. Another was killed years later in 1972. But even then, the last of the five, Lieutenant Onada continued his war alone. All efforts to convince him to surrender or to capture him failed. He ignored messages from loudspeakers announcing Japan's surrender and that Japan was now an ally, in fact, of the United States. Leaflets were dropped over the jungle, begging him to surrender so that he could return to his waiting family in Japan. He dismissed these as propaganda and still refused to surrender. Over the years, he lived off the land and raided the fields and gardens of local citizens. He was responsible for killing at least 30 Filipinos during his 29-year personal war. Almost a half million dollars was spent trying to locate him and convince him to surrender. 13,000 men were used to try to locate him. But finally, on March 10, 1974, almost 30 years after the conclusion of World War II, after receiving a personal command from his former superior officer, who read to him the terms of the peace, Onada finally went and surrendered his now rusty sword directly to the president of the Philippines, President Marcos, who then immediately and mercifully pardoned him for his crimes. Lieutenant Onada's war was finally over. He was now at peace. Like Onada, all people are fighting a war against God. But the peace treaty has already been signed nearly 2,000 years ago. That peace treaty has been sealed in Jesus' blood shed upon the cross. We don't have to resist his offer of peace 
a moment longer. We don't have to resist his full pardon for a second, let alone keep resisting for another 29 years. So let me just encourage you today, if you have not yet done so, let me invite you to surrender your life to Jesus today, because in him you will not find a vindictive spirit, you will not find words of condemnation, but when you surrender, as it were, your life and say, I'm done fighting, I'm done warring, I want peace, he will say, you have my full pardon. You are forgiven for all the crimes you have committed. You are forgiven in full, justified, not guilty. Welcome into the family of God. And so now coming back full circle to where we began in verses 3 to 5. That now because of our newfound position in Christ, being fully justified, reconciled, and at peace with God, this completely upside-down, counterintuitive, seemingly crazy way of thinking and living that Paul now talks about becomes available and real to us. Because out of this new position of being at peace with God, fully reconciled, this now becomes an available reality. Listen again. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Author Isabel Kuhn once wrote, God does not waste suffering. If he plows it, it's because he purposes a good crop. I love that first line, God does not waste suffering. For the child of God, the one who is now in this secure position in Christ, having surrendered ourselves to him and found freedom and peace, now in this position, not one single tear, not one moment of heartache is ever wasted. And every last sorrow, trial, sickness, persecution, or tragedy, tragedy that we have ever endured in the past, are facing in the present, or will yet encounter in the future, every last one of them, God has and is, will and will yet use to produce in us perseverance. And from perseverance, character. And from character, hope. God will and is doing these things, even right now. Now let's look at them one at a time. The first one is perseverance. Perseverance is the ability to endure without giving up. The word itself comes from the prefix per, meaning through. And so through, coupled with the word severe. Persevere, through, severe. So perseverance is through severity. And so here, Paul is telling us that God's Spirit will give us the ability to keep going through severity, to go on through even the worst of circumstances, challenges, or suffering. Elsewhere in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul wrote, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. If we do not give up, if we do not stop, persevering. So again, we see that the reward and the payoff of the harvest comes to those who do not give up but 
persevere through severe circumstances. Now, one of those rewards, Paul says, that this leads into when we persevere is it will develop character. Character. Now, the Greek word for character that Paul uses here is dokamimon, meaning proved genuine by testing or trial. Proved genuine by testing or trial. So this type of character that Paul is talking about here simply cannot be bought or attained without testing and trial. In fact, this type of character is produced because of testing and trial. There's simply no other way. With this thought in mind, the great preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said, I dare say that the greatest earthly blessing that God can give any one of us is health save with the exception of sickness. You see, Haddon well understood what the Apostle Paul was teaching here. That the best and indeed the only way to develop this Christ-like character is not only through a life of health and ease, but rather through persevering through sickness and trial, where we learn to depend solely on the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit rather than upon ourselves. And further, Paul says that as Christ's character is being forged in our lives through testing and trial, that the next byproduct of this that it will lead into is that it will produce hope. A hope that does not disappoint. How often have you tried not to raise your hopes about something in order to avoid disappointment? How many times have you done that? I'm trying not to get my hopes up. We have sayings like that, right? We have other sayings where we'll say to other people, now don't get your hopes up, but maybe, and then, you know, fill in the blank. Now, son, don't get your hopes up, but maybe you'll get this for Christmas, right? And so here, Paul is saying that in, in exact contrast to that way of thinking, don't get your hopes up, Paul is saying this hope, in fact, does not and will not disappoint us. Why? Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. This is the answer. This is why. You see, the moment we place our faith in Christ, God the Holy Spirit is poured out into our hearts, not just to visit and then leave, but to indwell and and abide forever. No one can take him from us. And he has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And so, in this way, we are sealed in God's love by the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, even if all else in this life is stripped away, and even if, like Job of old, we lose our land, we lose our children, we lose our reputation, and even finally our health, we still have hope in God, one which will never disappoint us. It cannot be taken away. An incredible example of this principle in action comes from the life of William Carey, known today as the father of modern missions. Working for decades in India, he wanted to translate the Bible into as many of their languages as possible. So he established a large print shop in Sarampur, where translation work was continually being done and Bibles printed. Carey himself spent hours each day translating the scripture. However, on March 11, 1812, while Carey was away, his associate, William Ward, 
was working late when suddenly he smelled smoke. He leaped up to discover billows of smoke and fire belching out from within the printing room. He screamed for help, and soon workers had made a bucket brigade passing pails of water from the nearby river to the print house until 2 a.m. But it was all in vain. By morning, the print house, along with all of the decades of years worth of work, was burned to the ground, a smoldering, charred heap. The next day, when Carrie was told the news that the print shop had burned to the ground, he was stunned. Gone were his massive and irreplaceable polyglot dictionaries, compiled over decades of meticulous research. Gone were all of his grammar books. Gone were whole versions of the Bible that he had translated over the years. Gone were sets of type for some 14 languages. Gone was his complete library. The work of years, gone in a moment, was all he could whisper. He took a little time to process his loss, to mourn, and to pray. But soon thereafter, he wrote these words, The loss is heavy. But as traveling a road a second time is usually done with greater ease and certainty than the first, so I trust the work will lose nothing of real value. We are not discouraged. Indeed, the work is already begun again in every language. We are cast down, but not in despair. When news of the fire reached England, it catapulted Carey to instant fame. Thousands of pounds were raised for the work, and it inspired volunteers to then offer to come and join him in the work, bringing dozens of more missionaries to his side. The enterprise was rebuilt and enlarged, and by 1832, complete Bibles, New Testaments, and individual books of the Bible were being printed in some 44 different languages and dialects. And so, though at the time the print house fire and the destruction of a lifetime's worth of work was absolutely devastating to carry. Rather than stop or even slow the work, God actually used the fire to catapult the work forward in ways that Carey could never have imagined. William Carey later wrote, There are grave difficulties on every hand and more looming ahead. Therefore, we must go forward in hope and in faith. So in this year of 2020, with, like William Carey, grave difficulties on every hand and more looming ahead, may we, like him, resolve to continue forward in hope and in faith. May we, like the Apostle Paul, knowing that we have now been justified, reconciled, and at peace with God, go further and to learn this mystery of how to rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that God is letting nothing go to waste. And that, in fact, through our sufferings, through our trials, he is even right now, by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit who cannot be taken from us, producing in us perseverance, character, and hope, which will not disappoint us, all for our good and for God's glory. And so may we in this time resolve within ourselves to not complain, to not lament, to not bemoan our situation, but instead, like Paul, may we resolve today, 
Lord, I am going to rejoice in our sufferings because I know that you are developing good in my life and our lives through it. For our good and for his glory through his power that is at work within each and every one of his children. And so may we resolve to do that even today. Let's pray together. Lord God, we recognize that in our flesh, in our human way of thinking, rejoicing in our sufferings is not only foreign, it's upside down. It does not come naturally. And so, Father, we acknowledge that to rejoice in our current sufferings and our situations, both collectively and individually, Lord, this is not something that we can do apart from you. This is not something that we can gin up within ourselves. It must come from you and through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. But Lord, as we have heard testimony from the Apostle Paul, and we've seen record of how you can work this out in others' lives, even like William Carey and countless others like him, you can work this out in our lives. And so today, Lord, we just ask, please help us. Please help us, Lord, Lord, to learn today to rejoice in our suffering. Not because suffering in and of itself is something enjoyable, but instead through suffering we recognize your divine hand working out your good in our lives. Working out perseverance. Working out your character. Working out your hope within us. And that through this work, it will change our lives. Not only for our good, but the good of our families. Those around us, our children, and even our community. And so, Father, continue to refine us, temper us, and mold us into the people you would have each one of us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. And now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his smiling face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Have a very good week. And Lord willing, We'll see you next Sunday.